have been asked to preach a couple of times now in my history here, and it's my honor to do so again this morning. This morning I'm preaching through Psalm 24. Let me tell you, there's a lot here, several sermons worth probably. So I've tried to pare it down for you. I think I can have you out of here by dinner. So again, Psalm 24, please stand to honor the reading of God's word and go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to Psalm 24. You can follow along on the screen behind me as well. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up, excuse me, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated, and I will pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and for this chance to be together this morning worshiping you. I pray that you would bless the words out of my mouth this morning, that you would be honored by them, and that you would bless others by them. This is not about me. This is not about anyone in this room. This is about you. But God, we have the privilege of being blessed by it. So we pray that you would. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I wanted to start with a pop quiz this morning for our Sunday school kids. Probably grades two through eight, somewhere in there. And... You spent last year going through the catechism, the New City Catechism, right? Anyone familiar with the New City Catechism from Sunday school? Don't worry, it'll be the easy questions. Some of you are. Some of you have to be. Okay. Miles and Jonah. Very good. Okay. First question. Say it with me. We'll say it together, okay? What is God? Kids. God is the creator and uh, the creator of everyone and everything. Very good. And then we'll skip a couple and we'll go to what else did God create? God created all his God created all things and all his creation is very good. If you didn't know that was coming, you need to tell your parents to read the newsletter. <laughs> I'm kidding. It wasn't in the newsletter, but it should be so that people can read the newsletter more often. Okay. Um, for the note takers here, I will have three main points that I discussed today. Number one, God is creator. 
Number two, God's people. Number three, God's dwelling place. So God as creator, God's people, God's dwelling place. <clears throat> For the first point, God is creator, I'm going to reread verses one and two. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. As Christians, we do claim that God is the creator of everyone and that all his creation is very good. It was good to God, and he was well pleased with what he had made. And amazingly, mercifully, it's also good to us. Our needs are met. We have air to breathe. We have water to drink. We have sunlight to grow plants so that we can eat. We have plants that feed animals that we can eat them as well. It's all very incredible that the creator of the universe was well pleased with the creation that is such a blessing to us as well. It shows God's gracious care for us. What if God was pleased to create a hot lava planet with spiky rocks floating around in it that he sat us on, and we would bake in the heat and choke on the gases? Aren't you glad that God created this world for us instead? This one. There's a line of argument in Christian apologetics. It's called the fine-tuning argument. It has elements of... Uh, elements such as the precision of the physical constants argument, which refers to things like the gravitational constant. It's kind of like the power setting of gravity. Meaning, if gravity were a tiny fraction different, a tiny, tiny bit, if it was a tiny bit stronger, stars would burn hotter and burn out before life could form on a planet around them. If gravity was a tiny, tiny bit weaker, Stars might not form at all. Or if they did, they wouldn't be hot enough to heat a planet to sustain life. And I've heard about this argument for a long time, and I always kind of thought maybe 1% different. No, it's a trillionth of 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 a percent different. That's all it would take, and this wouldn't exist. And the piece that I really want to talk about is this conditions for life. It's part of the fine-tuning argument. A few elements of this argument are the fact that we have liquid water and how rare that actually is in the universe, as far as we can tell. We're just the right distance from just the right type of star, our sun, that our water is in liquid form. It doesn't evaporate away, and it doesn't stay frozen. We have an atmosphere that's thin enough to retain some heat from that sun, but it's thick enough to provide protection for us from solar radiation and from meteor impacts. We have a magnetic field that protects us. Even Jupiter, rotating, orbiting through the center of our solar system, has a large gravitational pull that protects us. Our moon stabilizes the tilt of the Earth's axis. This stuff goes on and on and on. And this is the creation that God called very good. Gravity set just right. Conditions for life set just right. Complex life created by him. We do not believe life happened by chance. And the math is on our side on that one. Not only did God create all the things around us, God created all the people as well. So another pop quiz for the kids. Last one. Another catechism question. 
How and why did God create us? God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. That's right. God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. As humans, we are all image bearers of God. This means we have some similarities to him. We know that God is creative, he's intelligent, and he's a worker, for example. We have creativity and intelligence, and we are workers. So in those ways, we reflect God. We bear his image. And while we were all created by God, and we belong to God in that sense, not all people on earth belong to God in the sense that they are his adopted children. Not all people on earth are Christians. I don't think that's a controversial statement. But they do belong to God in the sense that they are his creation, made in his image for his glory. Every person on earth is an image bearer of the Almighty. Every person on earth is an eternal being. Every person on earth has value far above every plant or animal, no matter how endangered they may be. This planet was created by God for us. It's for us. We are not for it. We have been given dominion over it, and we are not expendable for it. So what does this mean for us? Well, God created everything, and that's a creation that's good for us, and that we are made in the image of God. He is our God by right. All creation belongs to God. We belong to him because he created us. We all need to obey him for this reason as well. So whether you call yourself a Christian or not, your creator has made a claim on you. And as A.W. Tozer said, how you respond to that is the most important thing about you. He actually said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this is why this, this question is at the start of the catechism that we're teaching our children. It's a foundational truth upon which our faith is built. What is God? How and why did God create us? What else did God create? These are important things that we're teaching our kids the answers to. And as verses 2 and 3 tell us, we have an amazing God who has created an amazing creation for our benefit. So let us give thanks and care well for it and be good stewards of it. My second point today is God's people. I'll read verses 3 through 6 again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise to any of us that the people of God are not perfect. We are not in perfect obedience. We are not perfectly holy. We are not perfectly exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit at any time. And some of us, maybe not much of the time at all, which would not be a good thing. Psalm 24 gives us some of the characteristics of the people of God. 
the people who will ascend to God's holy place and be in his presence for eternity. These characteristics, again, they're in verses 3 through 6, and I count seven of them. Clean hands, a pure heart, they do not lift up their soul to what is false, they do not swear deceitfully, they are blessed by the Lord, they have received righteousness from the Lord, and they seek the face of God. You could kind of break these into two categories. Things that they, they have or they are. They have clean hands and a pure heart. They are blessed. They have received righteousness. They do seek the face of God. They do not lift, and then things that they aren't or don't have. They do not lift up their souls to what is false, and they do not swear deceitfully. So let's begin with who they are. Who the people of God are. Clean hands and a pure heart. This is a person who has outward signs of holiness. Not all the time, not perfectly, but you can see it. And they have obedience to God. And with that, at the same time, they have a proper heart attitude. They do work that honors the Lord. And their hearts are motivated by a love for what Christ has done for them. This heart believes and loves the gospel. And in turn, it manifests or shows good works to God's glory. So David here is saying that God's people will have clean hands and a pure heart. They will do good works with the proper heart attitude or motives. The next couple here, blessed by the Lord and have received righteousness. Another thing that's true about, this is another thing that's true about God's people. They are viewed as righteous by God, which aside from all the other ways that God blesses us, this righteousness is a huge one by itself. And righteousness, it just means morally right or virtuous, rightness in God's eyes. God's people need to be declared righteous to be in the presence of God. And as we see here, that's something that we receive from God. This happens for the Christian immediately when we are converted. There's a not guilty verdict given to us, and we are declared righteous by God. That's what happens at your conversion. Then we spend our lives being sanctified or growing to be more like Christ. The tension here is often described as already, but not yet. So there's been a not guilty declaration made about us, but we are righteous instead. Then we continue along this narrow path fighting the good fight until we die and hopefully we finish strong those should sound like bible verses to you because they are this is referred to as sanctification it's the process of us becoming more like jesus as we go about our lives after being saved this is where christians are this is what we're going through right now this is why many of us have stories of christians not acting like Christians. The process comes with seasons of progress and blessing. It also comes with seasons of struggle and maybe even backsliding. It also comes with instances of utter failure. This is what sanctification feels like to us. And this is why we need each other, and it's why we need to be reminded of the gospel daily. 
Finally, in verse 5, God's people seek him. They seek his face. In other words, God's people are pursuing a personal and intimate relationship with God. You want his presence in your life. You want him near. You want him to comfort you. So you cast your cares on him, your worries and your anxieties. And you want him to help you and change you and sustain you. So you are praying and learning and growing. Who aren't they? A great application to this sermon would be to reread these verses slowly, verses 3 through 5 tonight, and, and look at which verses describe you and which verses you have room for growth. And then pray. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to convict you and to help you. So let's talk about what, who God's people aren't or what they aren't doing. God's people, he, he does not lift up his soul to what is false, and he does not swear deceitfully. You see this right here in verse 4. Does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. So we shouldn't be surprised by these two things, that these are not how God's people conduct themselves. But how often are we guilty of them anyway? Basically, God's people are not giving themselves over to idols, and they are not liars. That's basically what this means. We're not turning ourselves over to untrue things or gods. We are not worshiping the God of sexual identity, meaning this sexual revolution and its ideas, they're not some really high priority in our lives, especially not the highest. In the same way, we're not turning ourselves over to the culture of death. We're not giving ourselves over to the prosperity gospel or cable news or politics or girlfriends, or boyfriends, or building wealth, or our image on social media. Even our kids can become idols. The idols of our day are many. And if you can name something that you care about more than being at church or spending time with the Lord and bringing honor to his name, you may be lifting up your soul to what is false. It's a temptation at least for most of us. But that doesn't mean we're to give in to that temptation and to begin to order our lives around the idol of kids' sports on Sunday mornings or political activism. There remains from eternity past until eternity in the future one true God. And our hearts and our souls should only ever be lifted up to him. He should be our desire. More than our work, more than our success or money, more than a good public image. As for the deceit being discussed here in verse 4, it's a bit more than lying. The Christian won't lie. We've heard that before. But we won't make commitments and then break them or make any kind of false promise. Integrity and honesty are what we are called to. I was somewhat shocked in the last year. I was having a conversation with some people 10, 15 years younger than me. And I found out it's a fairly common tactic. If you're invited to a social event, You'll say, sure, I'll go. And then you either won't show up or you'll send a text message at the last minute saying you won't be there. But the, w the bad part of it is that was the plan all along. There was never any intention to go. So that is, that is not honest. That is making false promises. That is not what God's people are called to. And it's rude. So if you do that, you should stop. 
should let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, it takes, you have to have a spine to do this. And you can't commit to everything to do this. And you have to have compassion to do this. But it's possible. So what does this mean for all of us? All the things that do and don't describe Christians from this passage, it's, it's, it's a high standard, a high calling. Clean hands, pure heart, not mostly good heart, not good heart, not an okay heart, a pure heart, not lifting up our souls to what is false. Righteousness in the eyes of God? Who could do this? Who could do this perfectly? How can we meet the standard? The truth is that we can't, and that's why we need a Savior. Rather than God lowering the bar and just wanting us to be happy or just wanting us to be a good person, he keeps the bar high. He keeps the bar at perfection. We must be holy and righteous. So that creates a a huge gap for us from where we are to where we need to be. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because each of us are failing or falling short of the standard of God's people need to meet. But God, in his loving kindness, has filled that gap at an immense cost to himself, at the cost of his son. If we didn't need the sacrifice of Jesus for our salvation, I'm sure that God would have been more than happy to not send his son for that terrible death. But he did send his son. And that's why verse 5 calls him the God of our salvation. Let's look at verse 5 again. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the gospel. He will receive blessing and righteousness from God. So notice what it didn't say. It didn't say he will earn righteousness through his works. He will do tons of good things for people and be considered righteous? No. He'll be given righteousness in return for his generosity. He can exchange money for righteousness? He can buy his righteousness? No. He'll obey really well. God's people will obey really well, almost perfectly. But no one's quite perfect, and God just wants us to be happy, so it'll be enough to be considered righteous as long as you're not Hitler, if we're just good enough. No, nope, none of those things. We all lack righteousness, and we all need righteousness. So verse 5 again, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive blessing and righteousness from God. Brothers and sisters, God is not only the giver of life, he is not only the creator and the sustainer, He's also the source of our righteousness. He even takes the penalty for our sin. And this is why we praise him. And imagine for a moment if it actually was dependent on us to earn our salvation. We, we resist God providing all the elements of our salvation. There's something in us that makes us uncomfortable. But if it was dependent on us, I would submit to you that we would all be on a fast track to hell. When we receive this righteousness, 
What does it look like? How does it make it to us? How do we know if we have it? What do we do to get it? We must have faith in Christ's work on the cross. Not just believe in Jesus or believe in God. Muslims and Mormons believe in Jesus. Even Satan believes in Jesus. And what I mean is that they believe Jesus existed. Satan even knew that Jesus was the son of God. So what do you believe about Jesus that Satan doesn't? We must confess Christ as Lord. We must have faith that Christ, in his death, defeated the power of sin. Faith that Christ took our sin to the cross and took the punishment for that sin upon himself. When our sin was placed on Christ, that's where God dealt with it. That's where he dealt with our sin. That's what was happening on the cross. That's what happened in that terrible death. That was for us. That was our death. That, uh, for those who believe what I'm saying, who confess what I'm saying, that terrible death was ours. It was until Christ took it from us. He took it for us. And that's just one side of the exchange. Christ took the punishment for our sin. It was placed on him. In return, Christ gave us his righteousness. This is why Christ's sinless life is important to Christians. If he, hadn't, if he had sinned, he would have no righteousness to give us. And we would have no hope in eternity with God. What I've just described has been termed double imputation by theologians. And imputation just means it's, it's being treated as if it was ours. So if I'm golfing with Alexi and I break a window and the owner of the house blames Alexi for that broken window, the owner of that house is imputing my poor golf shot on Alexi, considering it to be Alexi's, counting it as his shot. Our sin was imputed or considered to be Christ's. Christ's righteousness was imputed or considered to be ours. And this is what's being described in 1 Peter 2.24, 2 Corinthians 5, and partially in verse 5 of our text this morning. So 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We receive that righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's right there. In verse 5 this morning, he will receive blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And while discussing this gift of, of, of righteousness, we also covered what is meant by the God of his salvation. It comes from God. Every part of our salvation comes from God. Even the faith to believe comes from God. Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So the faith is a gift of God. 
Fortunately, we have a very generous God. We see that generosity on the cross. The cross is the epitome. It is the prime example of God's love and generosity toward us. He gave his own son to take the punishment that our sins deserve. God is also generous with the gift of faith to those who are seeking it. So when we fall short of having clean hands and a pure heart, as Christians, we can have peace and confidence that by grace and through faith, Christ's righteousness is still being, con still being considered our righteousness in God's eyes. So let's, let's address this next thing here. S verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In this context, uh, generation, it just means a type of people, okay? So such is the type of people who seek the face of God. The type of people who seek the face of God are the type of people that will receive blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation, you see that. Read it with me. We'll do six and then verse five. Follow along in your Bible. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. That person, that type of person, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So God's true people, they're described in verses three through six, are seeking after God. They have received righteousness. They have clean hands and a pure heart. And that's what distinguishes God's true people from the nation of Israel who are more generally considered to be God's people. Do you see the distinction there? And what distinguishes God's true people from people today who think they're Christians because they live in the United States or because they grew up in a Christian home or because they're generally a good person and God wants them to be happy? God's true people have a realistic view of themselves and of God, and they believe the gospel, the good news, which I've just shared with you. Their belief grows in them a desire to please God, which manifests or it shows itself in clean hands and pure hearts and a seeking after his face. Another blessing that comes as being a Christian uh, it's found in our, our third point, which is God's dwelling place. The context of this psalm is probably a historical event. You can, you can read along with me or just put your eyes on verses 7 through 10 as, as I talk here. The context of the psalm is probably a historical event. It's written by King David. It was probably a liturgy or a, a, a ceremony or part of a celebration of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem into the tabernacle. So this psalm tells us that it's good and right to desire and celebrate the chosen dwelling place of God. It is good and right to honor him as creator, as mighty and powerful, mighty in battle. You can almost see it as a responsive reading between a procession led by David and picturing priests and people behind him walking up the road to Jerusalem, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, walking up the road to Jerusalem, to the gates of Jerusalem. David would call out, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king is coming in, the king of glory. 
and a response coming from the walls or someone at the gate. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And again, David would call out, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, lift them up, O ancient doors. Repetition for emphasis. Answered finally with, who's the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So it's a celebratory procession. The ark is being brought to Jerusalem. The Lord is coming to dwell with his people. So there's obviously something important about where, the, where God does dwell, and that's our third point. It's God's dwelling place. The ark was considered by Israel to represent the presence of God. The tablets of the Ten Commandments were inside of it, but God was also considered to be with the ark. It was the holiest thing that they had. And in the time of the existence of the ark, it had dwelled in several places. Suffice it to say, the ark of the covenant, uh, when the ark of the covenant or God's presence is with the people, they are blessed. Things are going well for Israel. When the ark is removed or taken by an enemy, that is God withdrawing himself from his people and they are under judgment. So when God is not present, things do not go well for his people. And we see the converse of this in this psalm. And that's the reason for the celebration. God's presence is being brought into Jerusalem. It's considered to be a blessing to the people. They all recognized this. They knew it was important. And they were honored by having God dwell with them. God's people want to be with God. Or they want God with them. We see this in a variety of circumstances throughout Scripture. When you think of our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the garden, God would walk with Adam and Eve. During the Exodus, God was a pillar of flame and a pillar of smoke guiding his people. He dwelt in the ark and in the temple. And in the New Testament, we see people flocking to Jesus, wanting to be with Jesus, always crowding around him, exhausting him several times. We know that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will be present, and we will spend eternity in his presence. And this is the good promise of heaven to Christians, to be near God. People all over wanted to be with Jesus, to hear his teachings, to be healed, to hear the truth, to be blessed by him. People just wanted to be near him. And it was Jesus that said, John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is telling this to the people who couldn't stand the thought of losing him. Jesus, the incarnate God of the universe and our Savior, that would heal people and speak truth to the corrupt religious rulers of the day, that Jesus said it was to their advantage that he go away. The only way that could be to their advantage is if something came along that was better. When Jesus left the earth after being resurrected, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And this is better for us than it was for Jesus to be with those people. And how often do you ponder this? It's true, though. Jesus said those words. In 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are, the God, that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. We have the Holy Spirit within us now, and this is to our advantage, more so than walking with Jesus. 
<clears throat> when my daughter was really sick, she just wanted, she had a temperature of 105 degrees or something. She just wanted, she just wanted me. She wanted me to be with her. She didn't want me cooking in the kitchen while she laid on the couch. She didn't want me sitting in a chair next to the couch that she was laying on. She didn't even want me sitting on the couch next to her. She wanted me laying on the couch with my arms wrapped around her. She wanted the protection and the comfort of me being there in her suffering. She wanted me to tell her that she would be okay. She wanted me to care. We have a personal relationship, her and I. I'm not some absent father that's always at work or too good for my kids. And neither is our heavenly father. He's not like Zeus, unapproachable up on Mount Olympus. He is like a father to us. Jeff mentioned a couple weeks ago that he hears our laments. He cares deeply about them. He keeps his promises to us. He wants to dwell with his people. Again, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So not only is it an honor, it's a huge responsibility. As temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells, we have an unimaginable, though often forgotten, benefit bestowed upon us. We are transformed from worldly vessels of wrath to adopted children of God. We are able to grow in maturity and Christ-likeness because of the Holy Spirit. We are assured of our salvation because of the Holy Spirit. We have comfort and help and a guide to teach us the truth because of the Holy Spirit. These are just a, this is just a few of the blessings that come from the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in closing, we've covered a lot today, and I want you to remember a couple things. First, God created everything with his words. He created us in his image, and, his, and he made creation enjoyable for us. And because he created everything, it all belongs to him. We should treat this planet and our fellow human beings accordingly. It's verse one, or sorry, point one. Second, God's people are incredibly blessed. You have received righteous, the righteousness of God that gives us eternal life with God. This is better than the alternative, which is the eternity in hell. If you want to talk with someone about where you stand on God or if you feel God building your faith and want to talk about it, Dave and I would be happy to talk to you or even talk to someone around you. Third, God graciously dwells with his people to their great benefit. And the reality of living at this point in history is that we are more blessed to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us than if Jesus were alive in Spokane today. So don't ignore this reality in your life. Seek after God and take comfort in the Holy Spirit's abiding presence with you. We have much to be thankful for, so let's pray.